If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm so excited to continue the show with you as we reawaken with the spring season here with episode 301 and beyond. If you're new here, and especially if you're newer in your sustainability journey, I really recommend starting from some of our earlier content because oftentimes in later episodes, we pick up on and dive deeper into things that we initially learned in earlier ones. And if you want my guidance in getting started, you can sign up to our Embark newsletter to get our most popular episodes across a wide range of topics recommended to you. And you can find that at greendreamer.com slash Embark. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-supported show, and remaining an independent platform is critical for us. It is what allows us to take on a multidisciplinary lens in understanding sustainability with both depth and breadth, and it's also what allows us to cover a lot of alternative topics that are often sidelined by mainstream media. So if you value our work, please come uh, join us on Patreon to help us reach our goal starting at just $2 at patreon.com slash green dreamer we are starting to transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible and we're also starting to share video highlights on youtube as well in video format and all of this takes a lot more work and time and labor so just we really appreciate all of our past and current patrons and you as well for however and whatever you are able to contribute to support us thank you so much The irony of this, this concept of tragedy of the commons is that it, it is not about a tragedy of the commons. It's a tragedy of the loss of the commons. And we know that when the local community is in control of its own destiny, it makes the best decisions. Today, we welcome John Clark on the show with us. John is an eco-communitarian anarchist, writer, activist, and educator. He lives and works in New Orleans, where his family has been for 12 generations. And his most recent book is called Between Earth and Empire, From the Necrocene to the Beloved Community. John, we're honored to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. 
So today you have a strong stance against all forms of domination, and that's embodied in your political ideologies and through praxis in terms of how you live your life and organized La Terre Institute. I wonder if you could start us off by sharing what it was in your life or learning journey that led you to see our culture of domination as one of the root causes of a lot of our social and ecological crisis. That's a really challenging question because it, it asks me to reflect on my whole history, you know, and what, what took me in a certain direction. So at the beginning of the book, I, I have a section called, uh, I think it's called Reflections of a Slow Learner. Most of what I've learned about really the two important themes in the book, which are freedom and domination, but also empire, which it sort of capsulates the idea of all the forces of domination and the beloved community, which sort of encapsulates everything that I've ever discovered about what we as human beings and members of the earth community can do to get beyond that system of domination. I think what I'd like to focus on is what really brought me to the book and kind of focus those themes in one direction. That story is told in the chapter called, uh, Do You Know What It Means? And it's about being in India, where I uh, have had a program, a study program. In fact, that's where I was when Hurricane Katrina hit with, with a group of students studying in India. Actually, we were staying at a, at a Tibetan guest house. We work with the Tibetan community. This came out of a an organization I work with, which works with Tibetan refugees. Our study group was doing volunteer work with refugees and also doing our own studies. And at the time that that program was going on, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans. So we were there, those of us from New Orleans, watching basically the destruction of our city and not knowing what we would come back to. We knew that there was very extensive death and destruction. We had a lot of trouble even getting in touch with our families. And I remember actually sitting in a little uh, restaurant at the, on the, like on the fourth floor at the top of this guest house. So that's the only place where there was a television so we could watch the BBC and see what was going on. And I was thinking, who will do what is necessary at this moment? Who will come to New Orleans or come back to New Orleans and do exactly what the community needs at this point? And that was really the turning point in my life because I had been thinking about the system of domination, you know, about the state, about capitalism, about patriarchy, about the technological mega machine, about human domination of nature and what it was doing to the earth. And I had also studied all sorts of experiments, intentional communities, revolutions, evolutions, various attempts to come to terms with what basically our species or those in charge of making decisions were doing to our planet. And it was all kind of focused at that time because the disaster was so personal. It came home, literally, to my home. And I, I wondered who is going to come and do what is necessary. 
So when I came back to New Orleans, I immediately found a small community of people who had gathered together and were living and working 24 hours a day, doing nothing other than exactly what the community needed at that moment. We, we were living together at a friend's house. We were cooking food to take to those people who were still in the city and needed food. We were doing volunteer work to take people to hospitals, cut down trees that had fallen on their houses. In other words, we were doing what was needed to fulfill the basic needs of human beings. And of course, we helped animals also. <laughs> Not only human beings. There were a lot of needs. And I had this feeling that for the first time in my life, I really understood what anarchism, or sometimes it's called utopianism, what this was really about, what it meant to come to terms with the fundamental problems of our community, our human community, and our earth community, and to do exactly what was necessary and to make that our life's work, our vocation. And I think that was really the turning point in which all of these concepts, I mean, I'm a philosophy professor, I'm an activist, I've done this from different points of view, from theory and practice. But at certain times, there is a trauma that wakes you up. Another thing I've spent a lot of time working on is wisdom traditions. I'm very much interested in traditions like Buddhism and Taoism. And in, in the, the fundamental insight of Buddhism is that you have to wake up. You can read a lot of books. You know, you can join a lot of organizations. You can do many, many hours of volunteer work. You can write articles and so forth. You can say all the right things and go through all the right motions. But at a certain point, you need to wake up. You need to know what your condition is in this universe, in this world, and also in your own little community where you can do the most good. And that was the moment where all of that really dawned on me. And ultimately, it led me to decide to leave the university and to work full time on the problem of the crisis of the earth and the crisis of humanity. Thank you so much for sharing your path and your journey. You've noted before that our human community has dissolved and narrowed in scope over time from the whole world to the extended family, to the nuclear family, to the individual. And now even that is dissolving. And a lot of us have learned of the economic theory called tragedy of the commons, which describes a situation when individuals who have access to a resource unhampered by social structures or rules that govern access and use will act mm -hmm. independently according to their own self-interest and contrary to the common good of all users, cause depletion of the resource through their uncoordinated action. And this is often used as the justification for things like land ownership and private property. But I wonder if the tragedy here is not rooted in the fact that common spaces and shared resources exist, but rather mm. that there is a lack of community and the yes. and a narrowing definition of the self. So what comes to mind for you when these ideas and dominant presumptions are raised? Well, you know, I really like that question a lot. As you may know, I wrote a book on the subject called The Tragedy of Common Sense, which is about the tragedy of the commons. It's a, a little book, 
basically what you're saying is the analysis that I follow. This Garrett Hardin, the biologist, wrote two rather famous or infamous articles called Lifeboat Ethics, which is one of the most widely reprinted essays in introductory philosophy courses. And he wrote the, the, the article called Tragedy of the Commons. And, and the, this idea of the tragedy of the commons has been used for very insidious purposes to support the idea of privatizing everything and also blaming basically poor people around the world for the pro problems of the world as if population is the only problem and, and scarcity of resources is the only problem. It's a book that is basically wrong on everything that it says. And what's right is really the commons. <laughs> so, so that the reason why I called the book The Tragedy of Common Sense is that I, I taught this article in, in my classes for many years. And what really perplexed me is that my students thought that it made sense, even though everything that Garrett Hardin said about world population, about food and so forth, was exactly the opposite of the truth. That actually when, when people have more, they, they make better decisions. When people have more resources, when they have more freedom, particularly as we know, when women have more control over reproduction, when women have uh, more access to, to, to life chances, to, to jobs and so forth, that, that this is what actually helps the society while, while the, the lifeboat ethics approach, which is not to help people help themselves, is exactly what causes the problem. So the irony of this, this concept of tragedy of the commons is that it, it is not about a tragedy of the commons. It's a tragedy of the loss of the commons. And we know that if we look at the, the history of, of indigenous societies and, and many traditional societies, when people, and of course, there's been a lot of research done on, on this subject now, and we know that there's good objective research that says that the best way to manage so-called resources, which I, you know, I would not like to use that term, but the research, research tends to use that term, when, when we talk about how we live on this planet and how we live in our communities, the best form of organizing ourselves is not to privatize everything and it's not to establish state control over everything. It's to have democratic communal control of everything. When, when the local community is in control of its own destiny, it makes the best decisions. Yeah, that definitely challenges a lot of the dominant narratives that we hear. And here on the show, we've been doing a lot of unlearning. So we always appreciate uh, these sorts of perspectives that get us to think outside the box of a lot of the things that we have been taught in schools. And speaking to Indigenous peoples, you speak a lot to what's called dialectical thinking, which refers to the ability to see issues from multiple perspectives rather than an either or. So something that you challenge is this frequently said phrase, think globally, act locally. You say that we have to both think globally and locally and act globally and locally. And through your experience collaborating with various indigenous communities, you also noted that indigenous peoples tend to be better critical and dialectical thinkers, and that working with them has really expanded your worldviews. So 
Can you just unpack this for us further and also share how our dominant ways of thinking and seeing the world have been limiting as we're really scrambling, trying to find out what we can do to address the social and ecological crises that we've caused? One of the things that I've discovered is that being dominated sometimes makes people smart because they have to learn how to work within a system of domination to survive and to fight against it. So they often become much more subtle thinkers. So that's, that's part of the answer. Another part of it is that there's a kind of cliche now that, that in, in you know, Western civilization and not only Western civilization, we've, we've inherited certain reductionist kinds of thinking, you know, technological rationality, instrumental rationality, the so-called Cartesian mind. Uh, we're encouraged to think that everything can be measured, everything can be quantified, at least in the realm of production and the realm of power. We, we still, we still live in a totally insane mythological world in the world of consumption, you know, the world of the image. But what we find in a lot of, for instance, if you, if you look at the stories of traditional societies, there's often a deeply dialectical, subversive element. I used to do a blog called It Is What It Isn't. You know, I hate the, this phrase that people use, it is what it is. Well, dialectical thinking is about realizing that it always is what it isn't. The conventional wisdom always tries to convince us that it is what it is. This is, you know, this is how the raison d'etat, you know, the political uh, reasoning has been imposed on us. Capitalist rationality, patriarchy, heterosexism, all of these things. There's a certain way that the world is, and you just have to internalize it, memorize it, conform to it, or be terrorized by the fact that you haven't conformed. You know, as we know. Uh, in tradition, for instance, in, in Native American societies, there are figures like Coyote, the trickster. The trickster pervades so-called mythology or the, the traditional stories of indigenous societies. And the trickster is always undermining everything, making fun of everything. There's a wonderful book by Lewis Hyde, Trickster Makes This World. He also wrote a book called The Gift, which, which is uh, also an amazing book. I don't want to give you too much of a reading list for your, your audience, but uh, there's a wonderful book by a young person named Dylan Fitzwater named Autonomy is in Our Hearts. That's the title of the book. And it's, it's, it's about the Tzotzio language, which is one of the languages that's spoken in the Zapatista communities in Chiapas. And uh, it's just a wonderful book because it's, it's a study of the Zapatista revolutionary movement but it's about how indigenous values are so central to the transformation of these revolutionaries. A lot of the revolutionaries went to Chiapas as basically Marxist-Leninist militants, and they were going to teach the peasants about politics. And what happened to them is they didn't convert the peasants to their basically Western ideology. They were converted to much of the traditional view the traditional outlook, worldview of the indigenous people. And that, uh, Dylan, who, uh, he was, he was a student at Hampshire College. And, and actually I, a friend of mine and I found, uh, had access to his undergraduate thesis that he wrote after spending time in the Zapatista schools and studying the Tzotzil language. We thought this young, young guy 
knows more than most of the scholars, academic people, and so forth that tell us about what's going on there because he went down there and listened to the indigenous people and is telling us what they told him. So often the, the traditional language is much more subtle. For instance, we have all these vague ideas about the soul, which hardly has any meaning anymore in our society. But in Chiapas, uh, the soul is a collective thing. It has many different aspects and subtleties that would be rather baffling to us. There are just so many concepts. They, they have difficulty using our reductionist concepts of power and politics because the concepts they, they use are, for instance, the, the social term, which means bringing ourselves to greatness, like communally bringing ourselves together to greatness. They basically have a communal language, which allows them to think and organize themselves in different ways that our atomistic, individualist, reductionist language just doesn't allow us to do. So... That's what I was saying. You asked the big question. And uh, one reason why I, I, I wrote this preface about reflections of a slow learner was because it took me so long to learn some of these things. Back in the 90s, I, I worked for 10 years with, with the Papuan people. Uh, it so happened that a large corporation called Freeport McMoran that had a headquarters in New Orleans was not only wreaking havoc ecologically with the Mississippi River and other, well, also Barton Springs, for instance, in Austin. They were, they were doing great damage here, but it turned out they were really involved in genocide and ecocide in West Papua, which is the western half of the island of so-called New Guinea. And so I spent 10 years working in support of them, uh, working against this corporation. And it was really a turning point in my life to listen to the indigenous people who had two $5 billion suits in New Orleans in federal and state courts against this corporation. So I learned that there are many people still walking the earth on this planet who have much more of a connection to traditional ecological views of reality and whom we can learn a lot from. And then after the 10 years working with the Papuans, I started working with the Tibetans, which is why I was in India in 2005 with our India program. I think I would, I would, I would be very impoverished spiritually and mentally if I had not had the opportunity to work with people like the Papuans and the Tibetans for the last uh, 30 years. Such a long time I've been living like this Ooh, broken down And you come around and disturb me with your kiss Like something's found But I used to believe in love And it made me bold and tender But when I gambled Yeah, certainly sounds like experiences that have been very humbling for you as they should be and experiences that should be humbling for a lot of people who have 
gone through educational systems in the West and may see their views and knowledge as superior to more traditional knowledges and worldviews. And this is a perfect segue for us to discuss your chapter three, which was amazing. It's titled Education for the Earth or Education for Empire. And you contextualize this broader question by asking, given that we are conditioned to become egocentric, anthropocentric, ethnocentric, acquisitive, competitive, defensive, distracted, hierarchical, patriarchal, status, and power-seeking beings, how can we come to see ourselves and to recreate ourselves as communal, compassionate, caring, creative, spontaneous, awakened, loving, empathetic, mutualistic, cooperative, solidaristic, geological, and cosmological beings, end quote. And you had worked for decades inside of our dominant educational institutions. So I wonder, do you see them, broadly speaking, being able to train and equip generations of people that will have the knowledge and critical thinking skills to help bring about the large-scale transformations that we need to address our varied crises? Or do you think they've largely been set up in ways that are meant to condition the masses to just normalize the ideology behind empire and to support and keep empowering its extractive ways of functioning? I would say it's something very much like what you just described, although there, there's, there's a little more complexity to it. And I, you know, I think there's a little more hope, but in some ways, let's not be too hopeful. I, I think the dominant educational system uh, has as its function reproducing the dominant system. And I don't think we can really expect anything else of it. On the other hand, there are openings within it to do good and creative things. And I would certainly never recommend that people not take advantage of those openings. So I spent decades working in the traditional educational system. You know, I spent a lot of time working with student groups trying to uh, do what I can in my teaching to develop more of a, a critical and dialectical way of thinking and analyzing. But I saw certain limits. And as I said, that's why I decided six or seven years ago that I would try to primarily do education outside of that system. And that's what I'm trying to do now. I have, I have a certain analysis of, of the way the world works that's presented briefly in that book. And uh, I'm not going to spend too much time explaining that, but if I could just briefly summarize it, it's, it's, it's that we have certain spheres of social determination, which I call the, the social institutional sphere, the so social ideological sphere, the sphere of the social imaginary, and the sphere of the social ethos. And it's about, it's not just about how we think, which is the ideology part, but it's also the way we imagine the world and we imagine ourselves and we imagine nature. And it's also the way we live, which in, if I had to pick one that's most important, it's the way we live. You know, one of the things I'm very much interested in that's reflected in that book is, is traditions like Zen. You know, one of the things you learn in Zen is that every moment of your life is practice. Therefore, every moment of your life is either good practice or not so good practice. And that's what ethos is about. And practice is not only about ideas. It's about feelings. It's about affects. It's about habits, habits of thought, uh, habits of mind and body, uh, emotions, feelings, all of those things. 
This is also what institutions are about. So educational institutions are part of, in many ways of the dominant ethos. Now, you know, as I said, there's a lot of complexity. There are alternative institutions. I used to uh, go up to something called the Institute for, for Social Ecology, which was not part of the dominant system, but it, it met at Goddard College, which was an alternative college. And I, I think that we have to consider the possibilities that we can, we can create alternatives that in some ways are on, on the borders between the dominant system and, and the periphery. But I think ultimately we have to create our, our own world. If we're lucky enough to live in a traditional community that still has remnants of a more ecological and more communal world, you have a lot more to work with. But if we don't have that, we have to work on it. So, so in, in that book and in, in other work that I've uh, engaged in, I've looked at this problem and how we have to do this at various levels. One level is at, at the level, sometimes we talk about affinity groups or maybe extended families or base communities. And, and one part of my thesis would be that we have to generate, you know, part of the, your description uh, of the Green Dreamer podcast is, is that it's about regeneration. You say ecological regeneration. I would say that, yes, and ecological includes the social ecology. We live in a world that has become atomized, fragmented, alienated, and so forth. So we, we have this problem of, I'm looking at your, your description, which I really like very much, because in a way, it summarizes what, what the book is about. It's, it's about, you know, we live in this period of the Necrocene. You know, we came out of a period which was, was the Cenozoic, which was the new era of life on Earth. And now we're, we're moving into the new era of death on Earth, of mass extinction, of destruction of ecosystems and so forth. So regeneration, in a sense, regeneration is the word to substitute for revolution. We could say it's an ecological revolution, but if it isn't a regenerative revolution, it's not, it's going to be a revolution that goes right back where we started, which is what has happened to so many revolutions because we, the person I've done a lot of work on, Adizé Reclus, who was also a great educational reformer, let's say, uh, had this idea of evolution and revolution. We have to be evolving at the same time that we're working for a revolutionary change, which ultimately is a revolution for survival at this point in geohistory. So, so that's exactly right. And collective healing is also the problem. And uh, one of the things I'm interested in, and, you know, this is straying a little bit from education, but it really is about education because this is where education really takes place. We could talk, call it socialization. We could call it formation. We could call it a lot of things. But it takes place in the primary communities, which are living communities and also learning communities. There's a, there's a great thinker named Martin Buber who wrote about the cooperative way of life. And he said, we can have different types of cooperatives. We can have a producer cooperative, a consumer cooperative, a living cooperative. And we can also have a full cooperative in which we produce, consume, and live together cooperatively or communally. And education is part of that process. If the, if the primary community is in charge of all of those things, just like 
you know, we, we were talking about the concept of the commons. That's what it's about. If our production and our consumption and our living are all co commons, then, then we're, we're getting somewhere in the direction of solving these problems. So one of the things I've also been interested in, in part because of things that have been very much part of my own life and my family's life, I've gotten really interested in therapeutic communities and I, I, I have studied these. I visited the probably largest and most widely studied therapeutic community in, in the UK. And um, I've learned a lot from therapeutic communities. I, basically, I found out that what really works is, is unconditional love. <laughs> and and we, we, you know, we need a politics of love. We need a, we need a politics of care. And we need a politics of love. And we need to do it a little more in a more sophisticated way than peace and love in the 60s did it. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about that too. <laughs> but but I, I agree entirely that collective healing is what we need. And that ultimately all of this is pointing in the direction of a world of abundance and wellness. And uh, this is what I would call a politics of care and a politics of flourishing to aim at exactly that. So I guess the question of education or formation or growing up <laughs> is, is the question of, of how, how we can be part of that process. You know, what is education for? And right now, I guess the answer is it is for empire. You know, the primary function of education is to train people to become part of a system. And that system is empire right now. Mm. What we need is education to be part of the process of flourishing of life on earth. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a lot of what you just said points to our need for deeper perspective shifts and relational shifts. But I do feel like a lot of solutions coming out of the quote unquote green movement right now are still stuck working within the frameworks of what this dominant culture has taught us. So something else that I think our dominant Western culture instills in people is this idea that humans are separate from the rest of life on Earth and even separate from Earth herself. And this leads to the common narrative that uh, human impact is inherently negative. And therefore, if we want to safeguard our planet, maybe we should draw more borders around quote unquote wild spaces absent of humanity and return and set aside more land for other wild animals. But as you noted, based on I don't know how to say this person's name correctly, but Carbonneau's work, a sharp division between the, an idealized ecological realm of wild nature and a supposedly denatured and fallen human realm can legitimate ecological destruction, end quote. So how mm. would these, quote unquote, green solutions that are still rooted in separation rather than integration actually lead to greater destruction? Both directions have an element of truth. I mean, I, th I think one part of it is that we, the wild is important. The earth has to be allowed to have regenerative processes that we depend on that have created us really and sustain us. Just last night, there's a, one of the educational projects I'm working on is we have a group called the Dialectical Social Ecology Group, which just met last night. And this issue came up and we didn't come up with an answer, but we came up with some ideas about it. And uh, one of the people in the group mentioned this half earth proposal, which is that half of the earth should be devoted to what we might call wild nature. 
One caveat is, I would say, that often what we consider wild nature does not mean that human beings shouldn't be there because the, the, the earth did very well in its self-regulating processes over, over millennia in which human beings were living in what we might call wild ecosystems. Uh, so that's one thing we have to think about. But there's another side to this, which can be very dangerous, which is to o really overlook the human beings. And th there's been tremendous oppression. And, uh, you know, there's a famous book called The Mountain People by Turnbull about the Eek Society in East Africa, which he depicted as just this. He, he, wrote, he wrote a beautiful book about the, the uh, Mabuti people in Central Africa, the forest people, which was just this wonderful, beautiful, peaceful, benevolent, ecological way of life. And then he wrote this other book about the mountain people who were very individualistic, sadistic, hostile to one another, and so forth. But what he didn't really mention in the book was that these people were driven off their traditional lands, which sustained them. And they had been pushed into a situation which put unbearable stresses on them, and they reacted accordingly. And he didn't really get into those political issues. But one thing that I think is interesting in that book was that Turnbull did mention that what's striking is that many of the qualities that the Eek exhibited in this very unforgiving environment are really found in the most advanced industrial technological societies on our planet, in which people become very cynical, competitive, harsh, alienated, and so forth. And that, that's, that's a very interesting uh, comparison that he made. In some cases, it is forced on people. You know, of course, the myth is by nature. But when you look at the situations, it's usually by human action, which pushes people into a position in which their lives are difficult. While on the other hand, many of the same characteristics or produced in the midst of affluence and really overconsumption. So that's the other side of the story. I think we need to figure, this is what a dialectical approach is about, to see about, you know, it isn't just one way and it isn't just the other way. It's a very complex problem. We need wild nature, but we also need to find a way in which human beings find a place in the natural world in which we, we, we work together cooperatively with that natural world. And often the ideology of wild nature is used actually to oppress human beings and really to create more problems. Well, I think this whole conversation was a beautiful example of dialectical thinking. So thank you so much for all of this. And in thinking about our future and possibilities, you often point to the goal of liberation. And perhaps it's helpful to explore how our dominant culture has shaped and even limited a lot of our views on what freedom even means and looks like so that we can see beyond any social constructs of freedom that many are currently bound by. So on this note, what does collective liberation as a goal mean to you? And what exactly are we liberating ourselves from? So in very general terms, we're, we're liberating ourselves from domination. And that, that means social domination, which are all these forms of domination, 
capitalism, the state, patriarchy, and so forth. But it's not only on that level. I mean, this is why I really think it's important for people to study indigenous traditions, to study wisdom traditions. Uh, as I said, Buddhism, I think, is very helpful. In many, way, in many ways, Zen is the practice of dialectic. And, and uh, Taoism, which is a, a very deeply nature-oriented philosophy, and it also tells us about how domination pervades the most minute details of our life and that we have to work on everything on the individual level because it's not only that human beings are oppressed by vast systems, they're, always, they're also oppressed by what's inside them. And ultimately, what's, there is no division. You know, the, the great uh, Zen philosopher Suzuki said, uh, he writes about the inward way. He says, in Zen, we say you, take, you go inward, you take the inward way. But when you, find, when you take the inward way, you find out that there is no division between the inward and the outward. So, so domination is not only something at the social level. And of course, you know, feminism uh, for, for decades and decades has been saying the personal is the political. And we have to take that very seriously, maybe more seriously than we ever have. Uh, so that's, that's the beginning of how we can look at domination. So another one of my books uh, called The Impossible Community, which is also came out of Hurricane Katrina and my reflection on, you know, what, what kind of community can we find? I develop a, a theory of freedom and a theory of domination. And uh, I call the theory of freedom the third concept of liberty, which is about not only negative freedom, which Americans tend to focus a lot on, don't tell me what to do, don't coerce me, that sort of thing, but also freedom of self-determination, not only on some abstract national level, but self-determination on the level of the community. And then the third is the positive dimension of freedom, which is the unfolding of all the best possibilities of all beings. And I, I, that's really the dimension of freedom that I, I would focus on most and what, what the, the book focuses on most. It's really this idea of universal flourishing. You know, Taoism is very good on this. Because if, if you, one of the books that I always recommend, and you can read it in an hour, the Tao Te Ching, you can read it every week. You know, you still don't have to take up that much of your time. But it's about how, you know, the, the, the name of the book, the Tao Te Ching, is the, is the classic of the way and its power, or the, it's translated in various ways, power, virtue. But in many ways, it's about the way of the earth and our way and finding a way that our way and the way of other beings can be in accord with the way of the earth. That's 2,500 years ago, and I don't think anybody's ever said it any better than Lao Tzu, whoever he was, mythological figure, great sage. Old sage or old child is another translation of his name, which I like, the idea that the child is in so many ways our, uh, our model. So that's what freedom and domination are about, you know, in a very abbreviated way. <laughs> and the last thing is, I want to read this beautiful passage from your book to close us out. But in defining the present and in dreaming of our future, you write, a burning question recently has been, 
what should we call our current geological era? It has been argued here that although Anthropocene has been winning, we might want to be a little less self-centered and much more planet-centered. The most precisely accurate term is Necrocene, as you mentioned earlier, the new era of death that follows the Cenozoic, which was a new era of life. The current era is the era of the reversal of the creative activity, the poesis of the earth. But what should we call the next era if there is one in which we can put an end to this period of death on earth? We should perhaps call it the Poeticene, since it would be the era in which the creative powers of both earth and the creatures of the earth would be allowed to reassert themselves. It would be an era in which all would be allowed to be artists or poets in the sense of radically creative beings. In such a poetic democracy, poets would become the acknowledged legislators of the world, and the earth would be acknowledged again as the great poet, the artist of all artists, end quote. I just think it's so beautiful how you frame the Cenozoic, which was the era that really enhanced and enriched biodiversity and life on Earth as creative activity and poetry of the Earth. So really appreciated that framing. And I guess I would like to close our conversation by asking, how can we as individuals support this large transformation? And I know we could probably spend a whole episode on how we get from point A to point B, but maybe just the few most topical thoughts that comes to mind for you and any calls to action you would like to share. Well, I I appreciate that you read that passage uh, and reminded me of it. And uh, I think poesis is so important. And in a sense, it relates to your question about education, because if I were to look for a model of education, poesis, to be creative, you know, I think that should be the center of education to release all the creative powers in the being. And I, I think that's really the, the, the answer in some ways to, to your last question. I think we have to begin by working in our own lives. And I've done a lot of work on a, a French writer, geographer, philosopher, and one of the things that he said was that the beginning is to to gather around ourselves. He he called them small loving associations. We could call it an affinity group, a base community, but but people who embody those values and those hopes and those aspirations and start living a life together that is in in accord with that vision. And that Reclus uh, was interesting to me because he also he, he was active in, in the first international, which was the first great organization of, of workers of the world. He was also a figure right now. We're about to, to uh, celebrate the 150th anniversary of the Paris Commune, which was an attempt to create a, a directly democratic grassroots regime in Paris, basically. And I, I think that's a good idea of the next step. We, we work on the, the personal level with small groups, also creating cooperatives and other forms of association, but then also try to do something at the level of our neighborhood and our town or our city in which we embody these ideals in transformation at that level. And then also at at the larger global level. And uh, at at the time of uh, the Paris Commune and Elysee Reclus, they had the concept of the universal republic so that all of these small loving groups of individuals and also the communes at the local level would have an awareness that we are united as a species and also as part of the earth. The earth is so important and we have to be thinking about the fact that we are the earth. This French philosopher had this phrase in French, 
I'll tell you in French. I love it in French. It's interesting in French. L'homme et la nature prenons conscience d'elle-même, which means humanity is nature becoming consciousness, conscious, but in French it's taking consciousness. It is nature through us becoming conscious of. And in French, humanity was l'homme, which is masculine, but it's herself when you get to the earth. So ultimately the feminine appears <laughs> that when we become conscious of ourselves. So it's a kind of interesting linguistic dialectic, but this is the question in a sense, can we in our own personal lives, in our local life, in our regional life, and in our global life, somehow realize this destiny and this real identity of ourselves as the earth being conscious of herself. With the dark, there was nothing to trust in the face of desire. What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Well, I had no choice on this one. I, I knew what your question was going to be. And one of the groups, actually, it's the APE group, it's called, which is Anarchist Political Ecology. And there's a big movement to read Always Coming Home by Ursula K. Le Guin, which I think I'm going to be rereading soon. And that is a work that I think expresses the vision that we've been talking about more than any other fictional work that I know. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I think in a way it's what we've been talking about. It's about poesis. It's to stay in touch with the creative forces in, our, in my own life, in the, in the lives of people around me and in nature. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? What makes me most hopeful is when I'm around joyful, creative, caring, hopeful people. Well, Green Dreamer, we are wrapping up here, but if you want to learn more and stay updated on John's work, you can head to www.laterreinstitute.org and you can also connect with them on social media by joining the Facebook groups, Laterre Institute for Community and Ecology, and also the Dialectical Social Ecology. And we'll have these things linked in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. John, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Really appreciative of you and your book and all the really thought-provoking work that you've put out there. So thank you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Well, my final words would just be, I'd like to thank you so much for what you're doing. And uh, green and dream are two of my favorite words. And I think if people keep those in mind, they'll be going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. 
This episode was brought to you by our community and listener patrons. To support this independent media platform, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. The song featured in this episode is Prove Me Wrong by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production management intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. I'm deeply grateful to have you here for your ongoing support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode.